Honors, and may it please the court. Paul Cassell for 15 families who lost uh, loved ones in the crashes of two Boeing 737 MAX aircraft. Many of those families are here in the courtroom this morning. Many others literally around the globe are listening on this court's audio feed. And the reason they're here is because Congress promised them enforceable rights in the Crime Victims' Rights Act. As relevant here this morning, they were promised the right to reasonably confer with prosecutors, to timely notice of any deferred prosecution agreement, and to be treated fairly through the process. The district court in this case found, as a matter of fact, that all of those rights had been denied to the victims' families. And yet, when it came time to enforce those rights, the district court said Congress had not given it the authority to, quote, ensure that justice was done, close quote. The, sl the slight clarity of the case is there's no dispute about the CVRA violations. Correct. At least A5 and A9. Correct. And there's no dispute, at least with a cross appeal, that your clients are victims. So but the issue, does, is it fair to say the issue, most of it reduces to a remedy issue? Precisely. I mean, it is true that Boeing has uh, tried to insert into this case the issue of whether the victims' families here represented crime victims. But this court, as you know from our brief, in our view, lacks jurisdiction to consider the matter. In any event, that's a factual issue that would be entitled to review only for clearly erroneous mistakes below. So the case boils down, I think, as you suggest, to whether there was a remedy or not. And here again, we submit that that question is fairly straightforward as well. Congress in the CVRA put in a provision which we call the judicial enforcement provision. And challenge, sure, but, but even, I mean, this isn't critical of you because I think it's a difficult, there isn't that much law, and I don't see that much under 3771. Let's say I'm not persuaded, or you, maybe you're not even asking for us to reverse the tolling decision. And then maybe more, Controversially, you push back. I'm not. I don't really see that we have authority to piecemeal parse through a DPA. But, but I guess I'm thinking. Ultimately, a DPA is something a court will revisit at the dismissal stage. So, so am I wrong to think that we, we either redo the whole thing? but that would mean unwinding something like the $500 million fund or not? In other words, isn't it all or nothing? Uh, no, Your Honor. I, I think there are multiple ways that you could grant the petition. The simplest way is that the district court never considered our argument that the shall ensure clause applies. So one simple way to resolve this issue, by the way, Boeing and the government didn't address it in their filings below either. So one simple way to handle this petition would be to send it back to Judge O'Connor to rule in the first instance. But uh, we believe that the better course would be for this court to put an end to what's already been 14 months of litigation by granting the petition. And as you mentioned, the simplest way to grant the petition is to simply follow the text of the CVRA. But then if you want to look for other sources of authority, you've already mentioned the Speedy Trial Act, which requires the consent of the district court to extending it. By the way, the district- You aren't opposing the tolling, right? You wouldn't want the time to have elapsed. Well, we're opposing the approval by the district court of the DPA, and the Judge O'Connor said he had approved the DPA by operation of his granting the motion. I don't want to be cute at all, but I think it's relevant. There was a district judge in Utah in 2006 in a case called Heaton. An excellent decision, as I recall. Do you remember the, the relief that you granted there? 
my recollection is that in that particular case, there was a dismissal uh, that required ensuring that the victims had been conferred with, and so the district court judge in that case, as I recall, enforced the CVRA by directing prosecutors to confer with the uh, family in that case. Why isn't that, why isn't that the exact relief that Dean is telling us to apply? In other words, I'll read from your order. The court can discharge its obligations under Rule 48, and the government is directed to provide the basis for its motion to dismiss. This pleading will also recount the victim's views on the dismissal. So why aren't we almost exactly in the Dean posture? It's not a guilty plea we can undo. Thankfully, we don't even need to undo that because the dismissal's still a year away. So it's not in the same posture in the Dean case. So as you recall from reading the Dean decision, this court remanded to the district court, directing the district court to take heed of the fact that the victims had not been conferred with. Or she decided whether to accept or reject the plea. Correct. And here, Judge O'Connor hasn't yet been presented with the government's effort to seek dismissal of the single felony count. So it would be possible for that to be handled at the dismissal stage. Right. But at that point, it's much more difficult to enforce the victim's right to confer. They're entitled to a right to confer. Why though? I'm just interrupting because of your time, but why, why? Why wouldn't it just be almost the identical predicament, which is the court denies the dismissal? You've got a pending felony charge. Go to trial, stipulated, maybe even a stipulated trial based on the factual basis. Well, we certainly wouldn't be opposed to that kind of relief, obviously, but we believe that the release should come earlier because, I mean, for the families who are here this morning, there is continuing anxiety about what's going to happen to this case. There's when you say relief earlier, am I right? You want certain provisions carved out, like immunity, no future prosecution, re restructuring the FBA, maybe refer government officers because they didn't do the right stuff, but you want to keep things like the $500 million fund. I would, re I would phrase it differently, Your Honor, with all respect. Yes. We would believe that the way to resolve this case is the way that the judicial enforcement provision indicates the case should be resolved. The district court shall ensure that the victims are afforded their rights, such as the right to confer. How, should the district, how can the district court discharge that obligation? By directing that there be meaningful conferral with prosecutors, and there cannot be meaningful conferral right now because there is an immunity clause that's in place. In fact, if you look at the record. I'm pausing several. I think the district court would say, you know, you got, a, you got the public arraignment. Um, I made a causality determination. The government sat down with you three times, including Attorney General Garland. So you got meaningful conference sadly late. But when you look at the DPA, it allows a lot of criminal prosecution, all individuals, even Boeing, just not by the fraud section, as I read it. So with all respect, uh, a couple of factual corrections there. Those three meetings with the Justice Department, we asked to confer, and they refused. They said, we will not confer with you. We will listen to you. That is not what the CVRA promises. The second point is it does bind the fraud section, and we want prosecution by the fraud section or by other prosecutors, but we are entitled to confer with the fraud section about whether they should move forward and criminally prosecute Bowen. They are prosecuting. Right now there is a pending criminal prosecution. 
Right, but there is a, there, the way the DPA is set up, as I know Your Honor is familiar, this is essentially immunized, and I think that's the word actually that Judge O'Connor used. I mean, if we look at the real world situation right day, the company is sitting pretty. Nothing is going to happen to it for committing the deadliest corporate crime in U.S. history. It's going to file some reports with the Justice Department, and at the end of the day, unless this court intervenes, it's going to lead to a dismissal of all these charges. And that's why we're here this morning. That to any CVR case where the shall ensure language has led a court to actually appoint independent prosecutors? No, we're not asking for that. What we're asking for is what the CVRA promised, which was a right to confer with these prosecutors about how they're going to discharge the case. Now, we're not blind to the fact that it may be that ultimately our efforts to persuade them are unsuccessful, but no one knows until that happens. And I've had a chance to talk to my clients. They can be very persuasive when they explain the facts of this case and how it led to the deaths of 346 people around the world led to those deaths after Boeing knew exactly what the problem was with its aircraft and continued to allow it to go uncorrected until on March 10, 2019, 156 people died in Ethiopia. So that's the argument that they want to present. There's new factual information that they've collected in the last couple of years. In fact, the DPA is inaccurate. The DPA falsely states that Boeing's corporate leadership had nothing to do with this. But the Securities and Exchange Commission, as we point out in, in our brief at, or our appendix at page 480 to 500, specifically found that Boeing's corporate leadership knew that they had a problem with MCAS, and it did nothing about it. So we want to confer with the prosecutors about that and explain that they have an inaccurate statement in their DPA. That the fund is a poison pill. I'm sorry, what? What did you mean in your brief that the victim fund is a poison pill? Well, what Boeing tried to do is they seem to have unlimited funds to devote to this defense of this case. So by throwing $500 million into the pot, I think they assumed that at that point they would buy off the victims and make it impossible for them to challenge uh, the DPA. In fact, you see hints of that in their brief. They never specifically ask you to throw out the entire DPA, but they sort of hint that it would be complicated if the rights were to be enforced. But what well, we're... Let's be clear, I, I don't want to overstep what we can prove in the record, but we asked for an evidentiary hearing in front of Judge O'Connor. We asked to develop the facts about how this sweetheart deal was negotiated. And we were denied an evidentiary hearing, and when we conferred with the prosecutors, we asked, what did Boeing know and when did they know it? And they stonewalled us. If you look at page 612 of our appendix, the government refused to give us any information about how what I think is fairly described as the most heavily criticized DPA in American history was reached. Let's, let's not mince words here. 346 people died because of Boeing's crime. That is the finding of fact that the district court had here. Now, we think the DPA was unduly lenient, but that is not the claim that we're pressing to this court this morning. As charged is only 371 defrauding the FAA. Right, defrauding. That, that is something additionally you would you would like to be expand, correct? Well, we would. Who gets prosecuted? It's what's the prosecution and maybe restitution amount more or less or five. Well, our focus is not restitution in this case. Our focus is on justice, holding those criminally accountable for the deaths of 346 people. Now it is true there might be some restitution obligations at some point, but the focus here is getting the prosecution done, not what might follow from that prosecution. And so what the families... What, what 
what's the, what is the relevance, if any, that, that, that Judge O'Connor said no bad faith, made a factual finding of no bad faith? Two points on that. First is that's an unsupported factual finding. We asked for an evidentiary hearing. We proffered that we had sent emails to the Justice Department trying to confer with prosecutors, and we were told falsely that no criminal prosecution was ongoing. We even contacted the FBI victim witness coordinator. Same thing. That information not only was false, but must have been at least in reckless disregard of the truth. Because it. I'm sorry? It seems highly unlikely to us, and that's why we keep asking the government, just tell us what happened, and the government refuses to tell us what happened. Well, but I, I thought they did say, I, I thought reading the record, Gallagher, is Gallagher a man or a woman? Gallagher is a man, I believe. Gallagher was the one who then conferred with the FBI, and they thought by virtue of the fact that, the, that FAA was the victim, they thought legally that others weren't victims. I thought that's you know, whether you accept it or not, I thought that was the not bad faith approach, no? No, I don't think so. Uh, Mr. Gallagher, 11 months before the DPA was concluded, sent an email to the victim rights ombudsman, ironically, saying we've just read in Boeing's 10K filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission that there's a criminal investigation into these crashes. We want to talk to the prosecutors who are conducting that investigation. And a few hours later, the victim rights ombudsman said, I've been told by the FBI there's no such investigation. So then they contacted the FBI as a belt and suspenders approach. No criminal investigation at all. Correct. And in fact, that's the finding of fact. That's the finding of fact that underlies the third violation of rights here, that uh, the victims were treated unfairly. I mean, if, if we're talking about what's unfair. Before your time runs out, just switch to law for a minute. Yes. Uh, what if, how do you reconcile, or, or are these two cases inapposite, Wild, 11th Circuit, and Falker, D.C. Circuit, as distinct from our Dean decision? Yes, Wild, of course, is completely distinguishable. In fact, there's a footnote in the en banc decision from the 11th Circuit distinguishing that situation, no federal charges filed, from this situation, federal charges filed. So Wild is distinguishable. Your other case, Fokker and the follow-on case from the Second Circuit, HSBC, let's be clear, both of those cases hold that district court judges do have authority over the DPA, but it's limited. Limited to what circumstances? One of the circumstances is to protect a violation of, quote, recognized rights. That's language from the U.S. Supreme Court in Hastings. This is a quintessential example of the limited circumstances in which a district court was obligated to intervene. We have findings of fact that three CVRA rights were violated for 346 families in a homicide case. If that doesn't constitute a situation where a district court is obligated to step in and protect recognized rights, it would be hard for a law professor to dream up one. Because this is perhaps the most serious corporate crime in American history, perhaps the most heavily criticized DPA in American history, and violation of the rights of hundreds of families proven in the district court, and yet the district court said he could not ensure that justice was done. So we come to this court to ask you to simply remand to the district court and tell Judge O'Connor that he does have authority to ensure that justice is done. He does have authority to make sure that the victims' families have the right to confer with prosecutors and to convince them to do the right thing. And this is not a case where you have to figure out what charges should be filed. The charges have already been filed.
Thank you. May it please the court. Jeff Helberg here on behalf of Lot Polish Air. We're here today because the district court below improperly denied crime victim status to Lot and did so based upon latches, and we believe that that's an incorrect determination. First, as stated by this court in Allen, the CVRA does not contain any time limitation. Therefore, latches could not apply in this situation, especially when we have an open DPA. Uh, Judge Higginson, one of the things you mentioned in, in, earlier in the argument was a, a hearing on the dismissal. However, the district court below made a determination that there wasn't gonna be anything further going on. But, that, but, I'll, but I'll get to that point uh, later in the argument. Well, maybe, but a little pushback on your first point. When I look at 3771, it does have timeliness requirements, right? You can't undo, you've got a timely undo request to undo the guilty plea or the redo the 30, Rule 32 sentencing, right? Yes. So there are built-in suggestions that you just can't wait forever to assert victim status. Correct, and that's why I limit it to the situation we're in sitting here today. Obviously, if we're 20 years down the road, that's a different animal. So what's your rule of law? When is it too much? Could, could you assert you're a victim even after the district court had, say, granted the motion to dismiss? If the DPA, the DPA provided for closure, uh, well, the DPA runs out this coming January, and then about six months, then later, six months later, they're going to move to dismiss. Could you come in even when's what's your rule of law in terms of when latches would or wouldn't kick in? Or are you saying latches can never apply to a CVR case? Well, CVRA doesn't have a limitation, but logically, there could be a limitation as you describe. However, we have something in addition in this case, where if the if the court looks at the DPA itself on page 17 at lot mandamus record 84. I know we've got multiple mandamus records. And I think it's an important point out to the court, which is it says the company agrees that the statute of limitations as to any violation of U.S. federal law that occurs during the term will be told. The CVRA is a U.S. federal law that we contend was violated here, and therefore the tolling provisions here, it, it goes to the latches argument, but I think it's important to point out here, it says any violation of US law, and it talks about when the, the fraud department first gets notice, or the end of the DPA plus five years. In this instance, they, they certainly had notice when the families filed their motion. That was in December of 21. So this, the, the DPA was entered in January of 21. December of 21, certainly everyone had notice at that point. And our point is, with respect to the latches argument, uh, the district court below said, well, you waited two years. Really, we didn't, because when you look at the timeline, there's a tolling to December. Then in addition to that, the, the record shows that we reached out to the Department of Justice 
in December, it was December 30th, just a few weeks after the, the families filed their motion. So we reach out and we try to have a discussion with them for approximately eight months until we ultimately filed our own motion in October are you, Remind me, are you in the same situation in, with, with the other airline in terms of, did the government urge the district court to apply latches or was that a sui sponte yeah. determination? The, the government urged. Uh, okay. That's Bo Boeing, it was, it was Boeing and or the government. Okay. I don't, it was urged, it wasn't a sui sponte determination. But the now, if you were recognized as a victim, it seems to me what you want is an accounting of the disbursement of the 1.7 billion. But but that doesn't really to me go to your conferral rights. That's more enforcement of a DPA, which courts don't do, right? Well, I, I think the court is uh, conflating what we're requesting versus Smartwings. Okay. Smartwings is the party that's seeking the accounting. Okay, and you, we are seeking the right to confer. Okay. We, we in order want, to get where? In order to participate and be heard so that we can provide our industry expertise in, de, among other things, determining the $1.2 billion that right. was determined and how, how it should be applied, not necessarily an accounting of how it was applied, but how it should be applied because we can provide that industry perspective that was not provided for, and, and if I could make, yes. No. You could take 30 seconds to say what you wanted, and if you need more time, I'm sure well, you'll let me know. Thank you, Your Honor. I, I, I want to point out in the opinion, and specifically on page 28, uh, it's mandamus record 568, and what the judge says is he determined that latches applied because, and what he says is thus, the period in which 2022 movement statutorily conferred rights, e.g. the right to notice and conferral prior to entry of the DPA would have been recognized has long since expired. My, my paraphrase of, of that is because the DPA was already entered, I'm gonna determine that latches applies and the problem here is the precedent that that sets, which is regardless of whether or not it was deliberate or just a mistake with respect to what we would characterize as the secret, uh, secret agreement, this sets the precedent of you could have a secret agreement, whether it's deliberate or, or unintentional, and latches would apply in every case post-DPA if the, the logic undertaken by the district court is allowed to stand. Uh, and I know I'm out of time, would rely on the briefs, unless the panel has any further questions, I will take my seat. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. May it please the court, Callie Castillo for Smartwings Airlines. Mr. Helberg did address the issues of latches and those same arguments apply to Smartwings here. Smartwings is unique in this situation in that the district court did sua sponte rule latches against it and Smartwings had no opportunity in the briefing below to the district court in its petition to address those arguments. 
I'm going to focus my argument today on the issue of the remedy that SmartWings is seeking with respect to the accounting. And the accounting is consistent with both the plain terms of the CVRA as well as the deferred prosecution agreement that Boeing and the government entered into. The CVRA plainly provides, as this court has already discussed, that the court shall ensure that the rights of cr crime victims are received as set forth in the CVRA. Those rights include both prospective relief. Okay. The S shall ensure that the CVRA rights are guaranteed, but you say as set forth by the DPA. I apologize. I, I apologize. I misspoke. As set forth by the CVRA. 3771. Yes. A5, A9, and unfairness. Yes, and those rights are both prospective in terms of the notice and opportunity to confer before an agreement is reached, as we well as the re retroactive in terms of the restitution. And here, that is exactly where the deferred prosecution agreement comes into play here because both the government and Boeing recognized that airlines had a right to compensation because of the direct harm that they incurred from Boeing's fraud. Okay. I guess we'll ask Boeing that. I'm not sure. Boeing's being careful. They negotiated a plea, or not a plea, a DPA to a 371 conspiracy to fraud the government. I'm not... They're clearly contesting whether the individual families are direct or proximate victims, as we understand legally, criminally. I'm not sure they would concede even that your client is a criminal victim for purposes of restitution. Your Honor, I'd like to refer this court to Appendix 14, and specifically Paragraph 12, which is the provision of the payment of airline compensation amount in which Boeing directly agreed to pay $1.77 billion to its airline customers for the direct pecuniary harm that its airline customers incurred as a result of the grounding. And there is the record that- As a result of the grounding, I, I'm gonna guess they're gonna get up and say that doesn't mean legally you are entitled to criminal restitution. But if you did not have the fraud that Boeing incurred on the government, you would not have had that grounding. And the direct- that a, That's a finding. I guess the district court didn't reach causality as to your client, did it? Actually, Your Honor, I, I would also refer this court to Appendix 93 and 95, in which the district court did find that as a result, Boeing's airline customers okay. and every pilot operator received both inadequate training and materially inaccurate material operation manuals based on the guidance from the FSB port. That is a direct causation between Boeing's fraud. What you want is go get this, get this trial done, get a criminal conviction, and get a criminal restitution order. Is that, am I right? Your Honor, what we're, we're trying to assert is the rights the deferred prosecution agreement gave to airlines, and that this, the district court recognized that airlines were victims of Boeing's fraud. And so what we're asking, what we were asking the district court to do is one, recognize SmartWings as a crime victim, and two, order an accounting to ensure that Boeing complies with this provision. Legally wouldn't, if we were to give you that relief, we would be in friction at least with the DC Circuit's Falker case, right? Because the court there said, courts are not in the business of enforcing compliance with the DPA. Fair to say? Fair to say that that's what they said, but they also, but their courts have also recognized that there is a presumption of regularity 
And this court, this case, excuse me, is every evidence that there is irregularity from the fact that the victims did not receive notice and did not receive their rights ahead of the Boeing and government's agreement to the fact that, this imp that the administration of this fund specific to airlines is not being administered. To this date, SmartWings does not and has not received any funds toward this. And it has evidence that Boeing and has either had already paid out those funds prior to even reaching this agreement such that this agreement means nothing, or two, is selectively administering it to its favored um, airline customers. But that is not the case here, and for all of these reasons, SmartWings respectfully asks that this court um, re reverse the district court's finding, order it to find SmartWings as a crime victim, and to order the accounting to ensure that it receives its rights. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. Connor Wynn for the United States. Before the District Court, the federal government repeatedly acknowledged that it should have conferred with the crash victims' families and beneficiaries before entering the DPA with Boeing in this case. To address that lack of conferral, however, petitioners sought judicial remedies that are unavailable under the law or, as the District Court found, unwarranted on the particular facts of this case. The district court therefore denied their motions for relief under the CVRA, and this court should similarly deny their petitions for mandamus. You, you would agree, having acknowledged severe DP, CVRA violations, that the government should think as creatively as possible how to remedy those, instead of, in other words, not just an apology. You're, I assume you're here, you're gonna tell us what the full orbit of ways to get them back to square one would be if you accept, as we must, that Dean controls and you had this obligation? Uh, yes, Your Honor. The government has endeavored in multiple ways to rectify the CVRA concerns in this case. Uh, it has done so to begin with by supporting the arraignment of Boeing and allowing the victims to speak at that arraignment and express their concerns and feelings both about the prosecution and the DPA. It has gone through. Un Let me mention the one thing that seems to me essential to this, though, uh, the difference between what the effect of a pre-DPA conferral would be and, and just meetings uh, to hear the concerns of the victims. Um, it seems to me to unravel that, to actually give meaning to the conferral obligation, the DPA needs to be on the table. And I think your argument all along has been that it can't be, that we are, this thing's in motion. I mean, is, is, is that the impenetrable barrier to, to giving any recognition to the right to confer? So, Judge Southwick, I think you're touching on one of the fundamental tensions in this case, and that is that the government can never go back and put the individual petitioners in the position of if we had conferred with them before entering into the DPA, and that sort of relief isn't on the table here because it is neither authorized by the CVRA nor the Speedy Trial Act, particularly when those statutes are read through the constitutional avoidance canon and separation of powers concerns. 
and it's also not available under the district court's inherent authority. So what both of your questions are getting at is how can the government make this the most right that is consonant with both the statutory regimes and the Constitution here. That's what we've been endeavoring to do. We've attempted to meet with them, admittedly post hoc. It's not as good as if we had done well, it you, before. I, I guess I, I'm, I'm just not really understanding that because you have charged Boeing with a felony. That felony is still pending. That's correct, Judge Higginson. So the criminal prosecution goes forward? Uh, subject to the deferral under the DPA and pending a final evaluation of whether to dismiss the charges but at the conclusion of that agreement. I look at it is the, the, you know, when the government makes its bed, either with an NFA or a DPA, the courts aren't going to touch that contract. But the courts with a DPA, unlike Mr. Epstein's arrangement in Wild, you still have to come and you're only bound to seek a dismissal and the district court can deny the dismissal, and the government then would have to go to trial. No? Uh, Your Honor, that touches on a couple of things. And before I get to the exact legal mechanics of how Rule 48 dismissal works in this case, I do want to point out that the government has committed to consulting with the individual petitioners before that Rule 48 hearing. We made that representation below in the district court and intend to honor it. As to the specific mechanics, Rule 48 involves a, a number of the same separation of powers concerns that are underlying sort of the entire DPA status of this case. In fact, in the Fokker Services case with the well, D.C. Circuit. I'm going to ask you to confine yourself to our published controlling law, Dean, not Fokker and not Wild and not HBSC. Uh, certainly. I don't think there's anything in this court's case law that's ever spoken to that exact but situation. Dean said, we're going to remand district judge in the Rule 11 context, you can decide to reject the guilty plea. There's no infringement of Article II authority. The district court's being asked to imp it's impose its imprimatur, and it says no. That's, to me, identical to Rule 48. That just, you're going to ask the court to, dis to, to dismiss, but you know our law on Rule 48, correct? So you're, you're not saying this DPA binds the court to grant your motion to dismiss, are you? Uh, no, Your Honor, I don't think the court is obligated to grant the motion to dismiss, I, I think it would, I don't think it what could just. What is the very clear en banc settled Fifth Circuit law as to the two reasons a district court will reject a government motion to dismiss? What are the two separate reasons? Your Honor, I believe that the district court will, dis, will reject a motion to dismiss if there's some suggestion of government irre irregularity. Okay, and they clearly think there's an immense amount of secrecy and irregularity, so they may get an evidentiary here on that. And what's the separate reason a district court can reject? I, I believe if it relates to potentially the interests of the public and justice. And, and I'm, I'm just pressing you to see your answer, but how could it not relate to the public interest if the government's acknowledged minimum two, maybe three violations of the CVRA? So it would seem to me there's going to be a really difficult question as to whether this prosecution ends or whether the government goes forward against Boeing. That may well be so, Your Honor, and I'm sure as things develop and that hearing comes to fruition, those concerns will be present for the district court to think about and to evaluate whether... To accept that that is the legal regime. Therefore, the government, in the conferring with the, that you insist you're doing with the victims... Over the next year, it may be you accompany your motion to dismiss with a description of why there was bad faith and why there is a massive violation of the public interest. You would fully disclose all that. Your Honor, I think we would continue to discuss these matters in the way that we have so far. I think to the extent we're going to fully disclose some of the government's internal deliberations, 
I can't make any guarantees or representations as to exactly how we would go about doing that, or if we would. Uh, you know, we have attorney-client and deliberative process privileges well, to, to think about. At the same time as the victims were being told there's no criminal investigation, was Boeing conferring with your fraud section in relation to resolving a criminal investigation, yes or no? So at that point, the investigation had been opened. I don't believe there were uh, resolution discussions on the table at that point, but the government was investigating well, Boeing. Clearly, there were resolution discussions before you filed the DPA and the information. That's and correct, the, Your Honor. There's no doubt that the victims were never included. Certainly, I agree with that. I just mean to point out that, the, um, as far as I'm aware, the resolution discussions came later in time than when uh, the victims reached out to the ombudsman. At that point, the government was investigating Boeing and considering what charges, if any, to bring. Your Honor, the Justice Department had, well, to be clear, we were considering these particular individuals throughout uh, the investigation and negotiation of the DPA. As you can see, as Your Honor is aware, there's a $500 million fund that we specifically negotiated with Boeing and included in the DPA to ensure some sort of compensation for those individuals. The government, however, read the CVRA, its definition of crime victim, uh, to not include these individuals at the time that it was entering this negotiation. Therefore, it didn't believe that it had an obligation under the CVRA to, in fact, confer with them. And that's, and that's why there was no conferral. It wasn't the government attempting to you know, disregard its obligations under that statute. Your Honor, we, put, we advanced that argument and continue to advance it throughout the district court proceedings in this case. Uh, Judge O'Connor ruled against the government's position on that point. Uh, and after that, we have no longer been pressing that argument. Um, I will note that in Judge O'Connor's final remedial opinion, he described that as a good faith legal error by the government. Uh, and that is exactly what it was. You're not suggesting that a district court's denying a Rule 48 dismissal motion in any way has constitutional separation of powers. That's just a court doing its job. Your Honor, I think that it could, depending on the exact reasons that the district court denied the motion. Uh, it's, the, you know, it's the United States' position that were a district court to order the government to continue prosecuting, that does start to infringe upon Article II concerns. Well, go with me on the hypothetical. Let's say we enter an order that's equivalent to the district judge's order in Heaton. Motion to dismiss denied. What happens? Your Honor, if the motion to dismiss were denied and if the government, in review of that, didn't seek further review, we would obviously comply with the motion. And that would lead with to the, Well, in that case, the prosecution would be live. Justice, when under 11C1, a district court rejects a guilty plea? Uh, I do want to tease out a bit of a distinction here between the plea agreement and deferred prosecution agreement context. I recognize that Dean involved plea agreements, but that's a little bit different. Um, the judiciary has traditionally had significant authority over whether or not to accept a plea agreement. And in fact, it's codified in the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. Deferred prosecution agreements are something different. They are creatures of the executive branch, and as a historical matter, the federal courts have had very little, if any, oversight well, authority. But Falker and HSBC, that was when district court says, I don't like this term or this term. Here we've got a violation that the government's admitting to of a statute, Congress saying victims have to be heard. The government's saying, oops, we didn't. So That seems to me very different and it seems to be especially different than an NFA. You're still, you've indicted, you've come into court, and you have to seek, pursuant to the DPA, a court to add its imprimatur to dismiss. 
couple of points, Your Honor. Uh, first, I agree that it is a slightly different flavor than HSBC Bank and Fokker Services in the sense that the courts there were reviewing the substantive terms of the agreements. But a rejection of a government motion to dismiss pursuant to Rule 48 after the completion of a deferred prosecution agreement is a different sort of intrusion upon the executive authority. Instead of telling the executive under what conditions to prosecute, it's telling the executive to prosecute at all. And it, right, I mean, traditionally, the government can bring a charge and dismiss it's at any time. already prosecuted. Correct, Your Honor. It's a pending case. It is a pending case, but it is also within the executive's purview to decide when to dismiss cases. Uh, the, it, Are you it, familiar with the Heaton case that I quoted or not? Uh, not off the top of my head, Your Honor. I'm happy to. No, 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 no. Um, you agree that they've done everything right in terms of there is a criminal case and they've sought mandamus timely, and you're not disputing their victims, right? All of the above I, is true? I agree with all that, yes, Your Honor. I think the fundamental problem is we think that the chief remedy that they seek isn't available under the statutory regimes. The statutes do not clearly authorize a judicial intervention with DPAs, and the inherent authority argument that they've advanced. But 373071 does now specifically refer to DPAs. And I think it's notable that it refers to the fact that they have a right to timely notice of a deferred prosecution agreement. Which they didn't get. Which they did not get. Absolutely correct, Your Honor. And the government does regret that. But I think it's notable that in uh, A9, I believe it is, Congress specifically acknowledged the existence of such agreements, but they're nowhere else in the statute said that courts have judicial authority to tinker with those sort of agreements. But, but you heard my line of questioning. I'm not contemplating a district judge would tinker. I'm seeing pure symmetry to Rule 11. You can't pick and choose and parse it out, but you still have to accept it or reject it. I, I, and, your, and Your Honor, I think the government would resist the analogy to Rule 11 because of the fundamental and traditional differences between plea agreements and deferred prosecution. Now that I completely don't understand, right? In a guilty plea, the defendant is still a charged, convicted defendant, and therefore they will have to pay restitution. If anything, this logic makes less sense in the DPA context because according to the agreement you've cut with them, they will never be convicted of anything. There will be no restitution. Indeed, Boeing is here arguing they aren't even criminal victims. So a couple of points, Your Honor. At first, I would refer the court to Chief Judge Swinnevason's discussion of the differences between plea agreements and deferred. Well, that's Falker again, but Falker's it's been critical of Dean. We're bound by Dean. But Your Honor, Dean doesn't address deferred prosecution agreements. I think that is important. It is only about plea agreements. This is a different case, and that distinction is important because it implicates different constitutional principles. I don't agree with that. I mean, Falker, Srinivasan saying you can't step in and carve out portions you don't like. That's settled law. That's exactly what the law is in the Rule 11 context. I, I understand that, Your Honor, and respectfully, the government would urge that. Would you that difference urge, matters. Would you be standing there urging the same position if you and Boeing had negotiated a DPA that didn't include any money to the victims? Yes, Your Honor, because fundamentally the government believes that, the D, that DPAs and NPAs are a form of executive prerogative and, and implicates well, the power of the This is articles. a direction I, I just don't accept. I mean, once I see the two as a world apart from each other. One, you're indicting, you're coming in, you had an arraignment, another, and that same one, you've got to get a district court to disagree. I don't see any equivalence. Wild, Epstein, that's an NFA, NPA world. Here, you've engaged the judiciary. You're still saying there's, I, I, I guess I'd like to understand, what is the Article II infringement of a district court doing what Rule 48 
says, pursuant to very subtle law, it has to choose to do yes or no? Because for a district court to deny a government's motion to dismiss at the conclusion of a DPA is nothing short of an order to continue prosecuting. And it is the executive branch's uh, determination under the Constitution Let's as to when to do that. evidence that Boeing had bribed the fraud section. You're still saying Rule 48 wouldn't allow the, di the district court to say, I'm not going to let them go free. You've got a charge pending in my court. Go forward. Your Honor, I think, that is, I think that is the rare situation where Rule 48 can so be bad used. Bad faith can be used to Certainly. force a trial. Right. I'm and not saying that the government has a carte blanche and can never be checked in any fashion. But at a Rule 48 dismissal hearing, there needs to be something along those lines where there's a genuine question as to whether the government is at that moment in its prosecutorial decisions uh, considering an option that reeks of bad faith or that might, uh, that is just so blatant, patently incompatible with the public interest. Okay. Those two adjectives, patently incompatible, don't exist in our case law. It's just in, against the public interest. Right? Against the public interest. And I, I think, and, and I think in making that determination, a district court does have to be deferential to the executive's view of what the public interest is under our constitutional system. Uh, Your Honors, I recognize that my time has expired. I'm happy to talk about the latches issue relating to Lot and Smart Wings, um, but if this court doesn't have questions, I don't feel the pressing need to. I, I defer to the panel. Uh, no further argument needed. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Your Honors. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. Paul Clement for Boeing. You've already heard from a number of lawyers this morning, but on behalf of Boeing, first and foremost, I want to make clear that Boeing deeply regrets the two plane crashes that claimed the lives of the crash victims. Boeing has taken extraordinary steps to improve its internal processes and has paid substantial compensations to the families of the crash victims and to its airline customers. The DPA entered over two years ago was a critical component of that process, and Boeing has complied with its obligations under that agreement for over two years of the agreement's three years term. We're, we're not concerned with compliance. That's just not our business, right? The uh, only thing in front of Article Three is a pending felony charge against your client. That's the way I look at it. Am I wrong? We can't get involved in whether you comply or not. That's the fraud section's world. I, I agree with that. I think compliance is relevant in the following sense. If we hadn't complied, then presumably DOJ would be going forward with that information, telling the district court that we're out of compliance and we're going forward with the case. So and, and, in which case we'd be in a completely different posture and the victims, if they are statutory victims, and we can talk about that if you want, but they would be there and have all of their rights. So I do think it's a relevant fact and I think it sort of sets the stage for what would come later and the rest, and again, happy to sort of Well, talk. you can see this, and it may be simplistic, which is why oral argument is gonna be very helpful. I may be just very wrong in the way I look at this, but it seems to me Dean not only stands for the proposition there was a violation, but Dean tells us what the remedy is. I completely disagree okay. with your honor, and I do think, but I'm not sure I'm gonna be able to persuade you, because I think I start where the government does, which is there's just a fundamental difference between the plea context and the DPA context. And I think that certainly there is a role for 
conferral it, uh, with the victims, and the government has said in its briefs, it will confer with the victims before the Rule 48A hearing, if there is a hearing, or the, the motions practice. Usually it's just a motion and it gets granted. Um, but in all events, they, they will confer. But if you assume that the result of that conferral is that the government wants to move forward and ask for the dismissal, because there has been full compliance with the terms of the DPA, and they have discharged their sort of obligations to confer with the victims, I think at that point the judge should grant it. And I think if the judge didn't grant it because it had a completely different view of the propriety of granting the, the, the motion or all of the things, I mean, you know, just to forecast, if you think, Judge Higginson, that, you know, that part of the reason that you can deny this petition, which I do think would be the resolution. You would deny this petition. Not, you, know, you don't have to remand after a petition for mandamus. You just deny this petition. But if in the process you said, well, there's going to be a role for the victims at the Rule 48, and maybe some of this can be addressed there, I will forecast you. I haven't had a chance to consult with my client, but my strong guess is uh, we'll be making some separation of powers arguments at that point, and we might be back up here. Maybe it'll be on the government's mandamus petition. Um, next time around, but that's all. I mean, the law on the Rule 48 is pretty darn settled. En banc Fifth Circuit law. As I described earlier, you can tell me I'm wrong. Either bad faith, which would then have to be looked into because their entire mandamus suggests there was bad faith six months of negotiations. And you, you say no, there wasn't, but I don't see any inquiry into it. And then, or a violation of the public interest. And it's hard for me to see that the conceded three violations of 3771 isn't violative of the public interest. I don't so see, I don't. There would still be, Your Honor, a complete mismatch between those procedural violations and the substantive remedy of kind of forcing the government to go forward with the prosecution. And I don't think your en banc case law deals with the situation where there is a, a Rule 48 motion at the end of full compliance with the DPA. You and see it, me constantly resisting that. Courts might as well think the DPA is invisible. It's a contract you two negotiated wisely or ill-wisely. All the courts are focused on, to my eye, is that pending felony charge and whether to dismiss it if the government moves for dismissal. All I can tell you, Your Honor, is I think that would be, I don't think you're, you, you do not have a controlling case. I do think the fact that the 48A, the 48A motion would be after full compliance with the DPA. Yeah, but I'm not worried about compliance. It's not our business. But, but, but don't know, it, full compliance in the government's view. Forget your view. I agree. You really have almost no role in monitoring a DPA, and you certainly can't excise it which is why denying this petition is actually quite straightforward. We are now really debating a case that is going to be before the district court in a year and a half. And I will passionately tell you that, you know, I don't, you know if, I'm, if I'm the one that's tapped to do it in the district court, I will be there saying, no, this would be a complete Article II violation. And if I could just bring it home to 3771, because my friend on the other side likes to describe 3771B as the judicial enforcement uh, provision in the code. And with respect, that just ignores the structure of the statute. If you look at the structure of the statute, and we can have a debate about how much you want to take into account titles and statutes and all of that, but I think for a structural analysis, they're helpful. B is entitled rights afforded. 
And the reason I don't think it's right to think about that principally as an enforcement provision is there is a subsection of the statute, which is D, and D is entitled Enforcement and Limitations. So there is an enforcement subsection of 3771, and it, it's not B. I mean, B is kind of the judicial equivalent of the best efforts injunction to the department. Yes, judges, Article Three should ensure that the rights are afforded. But it's I read 3771, the enforcement mechanisms undo things that they didn't get to talk about. It's well, a redo. No, I, I don't. Rule 11 redo, that's explicit in there. It's a Rule 32 redo. That's explicit. Congress mentions now, thank goodness, DPA has got to be considered because the government's coming up with these things. And at the end of a DPA, there is no criminal anywhere. There is no restitution anywhere. And as I read it, you're now arguing they're not even victims. We, we are arguing that they are not victims of the crime charge, and I'm happy to talk about that. We're not arguing that they are not crash victims. Of course they are. The only reason but, I'm not gonna, I wouldn't talk about it is the government hasn't crossed an appeal, so I don't really see it's before us. But we're a party, and we don't have to cross appeal. You, had an ad, you don't have to cross? We do not have to cross appeal. We can't cross appeal. It's a petition for mandamus. Right, and we, see, there was we, a causality determination of them as victims. Right, but this is an alternative ground to deny the relief they've sought. And the en banc court in Wild, in note 10, when my friend on the other side made this exact, you have to file a cross appeal argument, they specifically rejected it in note 10 of the Wild en banc decision. And I think they're absolutely correct. We can't, we're- is critical of our Dean decision. They don't accept that there is even a pre-charged crime victim. I don't, I don't think that's fair reading of the en banc wild decision. The panel wild decision said that, but the, the whole reason the wild en banc opinion moved to no cause of action instead of no pre-charge rights is to avoid the conflict with the Dean decision. So I think the en banc wild decision is entirely compatible with the Dean decision, and it's certainly the only authority out there on this proposition that we had to file a cross appeal. And again, we can't, first of all, we can't file a cross petition for mandamus. Forget procedurally. Okay. Your position is they're not victims because the crime charge says the victim is the government. Is that an acceptable d description of what you're saying? That is a shorthand of one of the essentially two arguments that we would make. The second is, okay, if you don't accept that this is an easy case because th 30, 371 tells you who the direct and proximate victim is, i.e. the FAA, then you still have to run it through the statute, which is direct and proximate victim, or it's direct and proximate cause. The district court did have hearings and concluded there was causality, and as I read your contract, and you can expand criminal restitution by contract, the FBA, the, the factual basis, does describe that's the premise of the whole individual fund, right? But, but with respect, I mean, you know, what happens in a DPA, as you said, A, you know, it's, it's between us and the government, but you're not confined in a DPA to promise to do things that are limited to the victims of the crime charged. I mean, if Boeing wanted to, and, and I think they have in other contexts, but if they put in the DPA that Boeing is going to apologize to every send an apology letter to every passenger who flew on a MAX 737 before the grounding, that would be an appropriate thing term to put in a DPA, but it wouldn't make every person who flew on a Boeing flight, essentially without a crash, without incident, a victim of the charged defense. So you have to, you know, with all due respect to Senator Cruz, you can't just say, well, it's mentioned in the DPA, so of course they are victims of the charged crime. 
And, and, and again, I, I do think in, in the... If the felony count goes to trial and you're convicted, your client's convicted, there will be mandatory restitution. This will be resolved, this issue. This issue will be resolved. I, I mean, I agree. But again, and this gets to like the remedy you're envisioning. And if, if I could just finish my point about D, D is the enforcement provision. Yeah. Don't forget about D6 of the Crime Victims' Rights Amendment, which basically says nothing in this amendment shall be construed to impair prosecutorial discretion. And I think when you think that, and, and you know, when Congress did this and got the Justice Department to agree to the CVRA in the first instance, it was provisions like that and the idea that it wouldn't interfere with prosecutorial discretion that got the Justice Department to ultimately support the CVRA. And if you start saying that now... You're not saying the CVRA is unconstitutional. Congress decided it's not an infringement to make them confer with victims before they make charging decisions. So that's got no Article II problem. I don't have an Article II problem with that. But if the remedy, and, and look, you know, it's Congress knew that prosecution's hard. It's particularly hard in a case like this where, you know, the universe of victims may not be self-evident. And, and, and so in cases like that, the, essentially Congress understood that DOJ would make some mistakes and that this was hard. That's why they put a best efforts provision in there, which is unusual. Usually you say just obey the law, but here it's a best efforts obligation. And Congress provided a safety valve in subsection F, the last section in 3771. It envisioned situations where there would be a CVRA violation and it was too late for an appropriate judicial remedy. And what they said is there's the possibility for the Justice Department to have internal discipline um, of the DOJ officials who messed up and violated the CVRA. And then just to underscore how relatively limited the judicial role is in all of this, they made explicit that the results of that internal DOJ discipline is not subject to ju judicial review. So with all due respect, I mean, I, again, I don't want to project what's going to happen in 18 months from now. I think there is lots of conferral rights, lots of procedural rights. But what's wrong with this petition for review and what would be wrong with the relief you're envisioning is it's a degree of substantive interference with prosecutorial discretion that is not contemplated. And, and, I, and, and, and at least as to the petition that's right before you. Your best case for that is Falker, right? And HSBC. But, but neither of those had to do with the CVRA. Oh, absolutely. But, but here's and why. Neither of them had to do with a, a statutory right, procedural right that was violated. Right? Am I right? Both times district courts said, you know, I don't like this portion of the DPA. That's just a okay, world apart but, from... But can I, can I disconnect yeah. those two for a second? Okay. We'll get back to the fact that there has been a CVRA violation. Let's, let's talk, though, about the, the statutes at issue. Yes, those statutes didn't um, involve the CVRA, but they did talk a lot about the Speedy Trial Act. And think about what's different between the Speedy Trial Act and the CVRA. First of all, the Speedy Trial Act gives an express role for the judge in approving the, the, the staying of the speedy trial clock vis-a-vis -vis the, the DPA. So it's expressed that there's a judicial role. Second, it doesn't say anything about don't read this provision to impair prosecutorial discretion. Now you go over to the CVRA, it's different in both respects and in both respects suggests that this ought to be an a fortiori case. The, when it talks about, when the CBRA talks about the DPA, I think it's very interesting that it says the specific right there is is to be informed of the, DP, the DPA. I view that as a, something that is pro, essentially projected exclusively to the Justice Department. It's not directed to the courts at all. It's not a judicial role at all. 
because the DPA typically it also treated fairly, and here you and the Justice Department are communicating for months, and they read in the news that your client's not even going to end up a convicted felon. No one is, it appears. So they read in the news that there's a DPA. The action isn't... And they read, oh, they've been charged. Well, Wait a minute. Fine print. The government's going to move to dismiss the charge. That obviously, they, I'm sure they read the whole DPA. They presumably read the provision that also says that this is for the fraud division, not for the whole world. They read the whole thing. Um, Eleven months later, they went to court. At that point, it is too late to provide, just as a matter of chronology, it's too late to provide pre-DPA notice. But then the question is, how do you remedy that? And you, you, you just because your time's running yeah. out, obviously you agree. I think you agree we're bound by Dean. It's a published opinion. Absolutely, Your Honor. I think I hear you vastly overreading Dean from the way I read it. Well, but you are uh, bound by Dean. I, 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 with permission from the presiding judge, I inst I, I'm not vastly overreading when I read aloud. Um, we are confident that the conscientious district court will fully consider the victim's objections and concerns in deciding whether the plea agreement should be accepted. They repeat that. Those are the penultimate paragraphs. In other words, to me, they're remanding to say, luckily there isn't yet an accepted guilty plea. And my view of it is, luckily we don't yet have a decision on a motion to dismiss that looks highly dubious to me, given our 48A case law. So. I understand that what I'm about to say is not going to persuade yes. you. Well, but I think, I think there is a huge difference between plea agreements and Rule 48A dismissals, particularly in the context we're talking about here. Now, I, I gather from a number of questions you've asked, you don't accept that. But well, the best case on that is probably Foker. And I know that you're not persuaded by that, but I think it is, I mean, you know, part of Foker's well, finish, finish your argument. Uh, well, I, I mean, part of the reason that Foker is so helpful is the, is the Judge Srinivasan essentially got to the conclusion that there's no meaningful role for the courts under the Speedy Trial Act or the inherent authority uh, in the context of the DPA because there is very little judicial role under 48A. And what they specifically said, and with all due respect, I mean, you know, I think it's getting lost in the shuffle, the principal purpose of Rule 48A is to ensure that the defendant's rights are protect, pre protected so the government is not engaged in a practice where they're going to dismiss and then recharge the defendant. So it's, it's just, and, and if I could just finish with this one point, if, just, if you think about, I think the mismatch with the remedy here, if you think about what would happen if there was timely information provided to the, to the, to the crash victims, I mean, they would have conferred with the government if the government said that it wanted to go forward with the DPA and all of the rest of this. Um, if all of that happened, then and and they still thought it was too lenient, there would be no remedy. And I just and and that just shows that there just aren't a lot of room for large substantive remedies that interfere with prosecutorial discretion under the CBRA. It was meant to be a much more modest statute. And to say that the remedy for blowing the conferral obligation is something you could never get if conferral took place, I think is, with all due respect, overreading it, especially when there's that last provision that says if the courts can't provide an adequate remedy, like DOJ can discipline the CVRA, uh, the, the people who have violated the CVRA. Sorry. We have one more question. I have one question. 
you claim that you had raised a latches defense with respect to SmartLink. Where in the record did you raise that defense? I don't know that, I mean, do you have the place where we claim that? I mean, I'm not sure that we raised the defenses to SmartWings. What I would say is, I think in the context of this, the way that it came forward, you had Lott making their argument. You had, I think, principally the Justice Department rather than Boeing, if I'm remembering it right, but I could be wrong about that. But principally, the Justice Department raising that as to Lott. And then the judge resolves that. There's no argument, I think, by SmartWings that there's any difference between SmartWings and Lott with respect to the latches. So, you know, in a perfect world, maybe it gets raised in the right sort of docket number. But I think that's a little too pedantic in the context of this because there's no material difference between Lott and SmartWings. The issue is raised as to Lott. And... But it was raised vis-a-vis Lott. And I think, I guess the way I'd put it is that puts SmartWings on notice because they don't have an argument that they're in a distinct position from Lott. I mean, another way of putting it is if chronologically Judge O'Connor had made the latches ruling first as to Lott, where the issue squarely raised, and then SmartWings showed up the next day with its petition, I think Judge O'Connor would be perfectly within his discretion to just deny it on the pleadings without doing anything more because he's essentially already decided that issue. So I think, this is a long way of saying, I think the fact that it was raised as to Lott is essentially good enough, especially because I don't see why it couldn't be raised sui sponte. I mean, it's, you know, if you're a judge and you're being asked to do something equitable and you think it's latches applies, I don't think you have to wait for the defendant to raise a latches defense. Thank you, Your Honors. So we're told by Boeing that Fokker is their best case. What does Fokker say? It says there is enhanced judicial power over DPAs containing, quote, illegal or unethical provisions, close quote. This DPA reeks of illegality. Three CVRA violations committed against 346 families. This DPA reeks of unethical provisions. You mentioned reading the newspaper. What happened in this day and age was 346 families around the world suddenly got a Twitter feed or a Facebook post telling them that not only had charges been filed, but they had immediately essentially been dismissed or at least immunized, I suppose, is the accurate way of putting it. And the people responsible for killing their loved ones were never going to go to trial. That's what happened. And you can imagine the shock and dismay around the world when that happened. And ultimately, they were able to find pro bono legal counsel to raise these objections. Now, Judge Higginson, you've mentioned the possibility of, of moving forward at uh, the dismissal stage of this case. This is the relief you wanted a lot more intrusive. That's not a negative word. Relief, including piecemeal going through the DPA. That, to me, does get us into the world of Fokker and Article II prerogatives. So I, I maybe hijacked all of your conversations. You probably want to push back and say, we don't even want what you're saying, the dean equivalent, that may come later. We want a lot more now. So you sort of got two points that would help me. One is, am I wrong? Is that unsatisfying and insufficient? But if I'm not wrong, what about the fact that Boeing and the government are both getting up and saying, that'll violate Article II. That'll be a constitutional violation if a district judge dismisses on these bases. 
Well, I want the record to be clear. We certainly are not opposed to the type of relief you're describing. We simply want more, and particularly more immediate relief for these families to wait for justice. That doesn't essentially do what I don't think you could do in the plea context. The court can't step in and say, there's still the fund, but there's not the immunity, and we're going to rewrite the factual basis. That's, right? Where's the authority? Is there any case law authority for that? Yes, we think there is. You use the phrase redo. When I teach my crime victims' rights class, I say that's what victims want. They want a redo, to use a technical term. What's the authority for a redo? Dean is a redo. Essentially, the case was uh, reevaluated by the district court judge. And, by the, uh, and also, another case would be Heaton, I'm sorry, uh, Kenna, out of the Ninth Circuit, where the court ordered that the sentencing hearing be redone because victims were kicked out of the. Sentencings and guilty pleas. It placed limitations on sentencings and guilty pleas. That limitations on relief for these two. Redo something that courts aren't involved in. Well, you you take the provision. The district court should have taken the provision B1, the judicial enforcement provision, and said, "Look, I am obligated to afford the families their right to confer." Judge Southwick, I think, put it very nicely. To confer about what? The DPA. They want that, as you said very nicely, on the table. And the only way to put the immunity provisions of the DPA on the table are to excise those. Let's be clear what, about what happened. We went to the Justice Department and said, we want to talk to you about prosecuting the company that killed 346 people. And we were told specifically, can't do that. We've signed an agreement. Our hands are tied. We want you to untie the hands of those prosecutors so that they can consider holding Boeing accountable. And the judicial enforcement provision is all you need to look at. It says that courts shall ensure that victims have their rights, and that simply didn't happen here. Another point, you mentioned the Rule 48A public interest standard and so forth. One of the things that would be critical if that's the path that this court goes down is instructing the district court to be more inquisitive about exactly what happened here. There were two sentences in the government's brief. We acted in good faith. What you ordered was that the government had to include in its motion to dismiss the victims used on dismissal. I'm sorry, in, in, in the, the Heaton case, for example. You ordered that in the motion to dismiss, the government had to include all the arguments the victims had as to why the motion should be denied. Right, so that would be, but in that case, there wasn't the kind of, of secrecy and, and evidence of deception that we're seeing in this case. So what's important as part of any granting of the petition is that there be an evidentiary hearing where we can understand. Remember, we've asked the government, what did Boeing know and when did it know it? And we were told, sorry, can't give you any. We were told sorry. Um, uh, page 611 and 612 of our appendix. That describes what happened when the, when the victims' families, in this case, tried to confer, specifically page 612 of our victims' appendix. And I, I think that those uh, facts are undisputed uh, at this point. Unless there are further questions, we would ask you to grant the petition. All right, counsel. I imagine every counsel here has more they would like to say, but that's all the time this morning for this argument. We will take the case under advisement. Uh, to all those in the audience who were connected with this case, uh, uh, thank you for coming. I'll call the next case.